Oh, gracious Father, I do. I, Lord, I've been talking about it, but your love truly does reach the heavens. Your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is unmovable like the mountains. And you just display its glory. We may see injustice in our world and it may frustrate us, but we can know that you are just and you will take care of us. We just have to trust you and wait for you and rely upon you and rest in you. As we continue this morning in worship, Father, as we turn our hearts to your word and keep our focus, hopefully right where it belongs, which is on you, I pray that we would have ears to hear, a heart that understands all by the power of your Holy Spirit working in and through each of us. Let your voice be the one that we hear. In Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, and if you missed last week, I don't know, I had so much fun last week. I hope you did too. Um, but last week we dove into Melchizedek, the king of Salem, the king of peace. His name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness, right? I, I, I don't want to go back into it because I'll just get all excited and off track. But if you missed last week, I highly recommend you go check it out because it was a blast. At least I really enjoyed it. Because Melchizedek, of course, is Jesus. And this week, we're going to continue with the high priesthood of Jesus' ministry. When we began Hebrews, one of the themes we discussed as running throughout the entire book is how Jesus is better or how Jesus is greater, right? We started with that he was better than the angels. And we've looked at how he's better than Abraham, how he offers us a better rest, how he offered a greater sacrifice because it was the sacrifice of himself and so on and so forth. That theme continues today. Last week, we established that Jesus, being the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, had a greater priesthood because his priesthood was eternal it was founded upon his character, and his priesthood is perfect. Now, by way of reminder, and I apologize, I don't know if I'm the only one, but my allergies are going nuts lately. Um, what did we establish? Jesus is, greater. Jesus is greater. Greater priesthood based on his character. It's perfect, and it's all-sufficient because the human priesthood was the opposite. The human priesthood was faulty because it was based on human strength and human ability to keep the law. So we went through all that last week. Um, today, we're going to dive further into the idea as Jesus' priesthood is based on him mediating a better covenant. You ready? Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts 
and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he, speaking of God, said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. So what's the main point? The main point of everything that was established in chapter 7, well, the main point is that Jesus is the high priest we need. He's the high priest we need. He is seated at the right hand of God, right? When it talks about him uh, seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens, seated at the right hand of God, when he ascended, at the end of the book of Luke, at the end of the book of Matthew, at the end of the book of uh, John, and then at the beginning of the book of Acts, as it, it, there's some overlap there, he ascended to the right hand of God, where we talked about last week, he ever lives to make intercession for us. And Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, reminds us that God has exalted him, given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, right? That is him seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And this is all based on something that God has done. Because what was on earth was only a copy and a shadow. So every priest offers sacrifices, we start off looking at here, right? Every priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So Jesus had to do the same thing. And this is well established throughout the book of Leviticus, throughout the law. It's demonstrated throughout the Old Testament, even into New Testament times, right? Before Jesus' death and resurrection, and even for 40 years, give or take afterwards, before the temple was destroyed, they continued to offer sacrifices in the temple. Animals, sheep, and, and goats, and bulls, and rams, and, and birds, and oil, and wine, and grain. All of these sacrifices continued to be offered. Now Jesus, of course, had to do the same thing. But he didn't offer the blood of bulls and goats. He didn't offer grain or wine for us. He offered himself. We look at that in chapter 7, verse 27. It's just a few verses before where we're at. He does not need daily as though those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. And so what we talked about last week is that his sacrifice is all sufficient. It's all sufficient to save all of us for all time. And it's all sufficient to save everybody for all time. Will everybody get saved? No. I wish they would. I truly do. It would be wonderful if, if everybody who ever existed was going to spend eternity in the presence of God. But the reality is, 
There will be people who reject that. Jesus told us that. He told us, narrow is the gate that leads to life, and there are few who find it, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who find it. Why would Jesus tell us that if it wasn't true? And that's hard. I know people who are on that broad path. And they are just, they are so stubborn. They refuse to come over. They know the truth. I've told them the truth. Other people have told them the truth. I've even had some of those people look at me and they'll go, of course I believe in God. Yeah, so do the demons. According to the book of James, even the demons believe and tremble. But have you received the free gift of salvation that Jesus offers you? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. That's not what I asked. Because here's the reality. No, you're not. I'm not a good person. Neither are you. Oh, well, I'm not Hitler. Good for you. Right? <laughs> Thanks for laughing at that. I've had, I've had actually people make that argument. Well, I'm not Hitler, so I can't be all that bad. That is not a good excuse. Great. You're not a mass murderer. You're still a sinner. You still need Jesus. We all do. And I'm going to never get back if I don't stop it. You guys know that. You know the truth. And anybody listening, you know that truth. And if you don't know it, you need to. Right? I don't make that assumption anymore that everybody I talk to knows Jesus Christ. And if you don't, whoa, you got come talk to me. Leave me a message on Facebook. I don't care where or how you do it. But you need to get that part of your life figured out. Because if you don't know Jesus, you have no hope. But his sacrifice, unlike the Old Testament sacrifices, where, and we talked about this in Leviticus, and I could not imagine living in that day and age. So I know how often I sin. Right? And if you're honest, you do too. So today, 1 John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So if I sin this morning, I can go, Oh, Lord, I'm sorry. I blew it. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that, whatever it might be. And I know, according to his word and by the grace given to me in Jesus Christ, I'm forgiven. So now imagine you live in Old Testament times, right? It's, it's Tuesday morning. You cussed out your neighbor. So you grab your goat and you walk to the tabernacle. You go to the tabernacle. Yeah, I cussed out my neighbor. Can you kill this thing for me? <laughs> Priest would kill it, make the offering. The appropriate parts would be burned. The blood would be sprinkled. The, all of that would take place. All right, I'm forgiven. Woohoo. All right, I got to go to work. So you start heading back. Maybe you're going to your field. Maybe you're a blacksmith. You're on your way back. Right? Well, let's just assume you're a blacksmith. That'll make my job easier this morning. And you're in there, and you're pounding out a new shovel for, for his build, right? And, and you hit your thumb. Anybody, what happens when you hit your thumb with a hammer? Praise the Lord! Right? It's usually not what comes out of your mouth. Grab your goat, head back to the tabernacle. Over and over and over and over again. And then, the only reason the priest can do that for you is because they have offered the same sacrifices for themselves first. Different world. 
That's why it talks about those sacrifices had to be offered daily. Jesus' sacrifice is different. Once for all. His sacrifice is all we need. And we'll praise God for that. Now he goes on in verse 5 and talks about how those priests serve the copy and shadow of heavenly things. This is why Moses was instructed by God to make everything according to the pattern shown to him on the mountain. And that's a quote from Exodus chapter 25, verse 40. So the priests only serve a copy and a shadow. The tabernacle and eventually the temple were a representation of the throne room of God. Now, how do we know that? Well, because there's passages in Scripture that show us the throne room of God. So in the tabernacle, you have the mercy seat, the cherubim surrounding it. You have light from the lampstand. You have an altar from which incense was burned. Now start thinking about various places in Scripture. You can go to Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah was able to witness the throne room of God. And what did he see? Angels flying around, declaring the holiness of God. You see something similar in the book of Ezekiel. You get up into the book of Revelation, and then it gets all kind of fun. In the book of Revelation, in, in chapter 5, and in multiple other places, as the throne room of God is described, you have angels flying around singing, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You have the altar. Under the altar, you have the saints who were martyred for their faith, offering up prayers. So the, the altar of incense that would waft the incense throughout the tabernacle is a picture of of prayer ascending before the throne of God. You had the lampstand. When you get into the book of Revelation, it says there's no need for the sun, no need for the moon, because God is the light. Everything. You can go back and listen to our studies from the book of Exodus. Everything in the tabernacle, which eventually became the temple, points to Jesus Christ, to the throne room of God. Everything within the sacrifices points to Jesus Christ, the better sacrifice. All of it is a copy and a shadow. And here's the fun thing. In the Old Testament, how often was the high priest allowed to enter the presence of God? One time per year with multiple sacrifices. And you've heard me say this, one of my favorite things. They used to tie a rope around his ankle before he would go in in case he missed something or did something wrong. Because he would drop dead in the presence of God, and they would use the rope to drag him back out, because ain't nobody else want to go in. Nobody was allowed. Even when they moved the ark, nobody was allowed to look at it. The high priest and one of his sons would walk in there and cover it. Or if it was someone else, they would walk in backwards and cover it, kind of like Noah's sons did, because they weren't allowed to look at it. We're going to talk about that this Wednesday when we get back into 1 Samuel. They just weren't allowed. Now, what do we get to do? We study this in Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16. We now get to boldly approach the throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. It's a different relationship. 
It's a different relationship. Based on, right, what does verse 6 say? A more excellent ministry, because he's mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. And this is not an issue. We're going to get into this more as we continue in the book of Hebrews. This is not an issue that the law was wrong or that God made a mistake. No, the law had a purpose. It still does. Without the law, we wouldn't have the knowledge of sin. That's what Paul talked about in Romans chapter 7 and in the book of Galatians. But it was all meant to point us to what Jesus has done. So Jesus has become now, he has a better ministry, he mediates a better covenant, and it's based on better promises. As a result of Jesus' perpetual and perfect high priestly ministry, say that three times fast, and the perfect sacrifice of himself for our sins, he is the mediator of a better covenant. And I love the word mediator. It simply means to go between or to reconcile. And he is the mediator of the new covenant. We're going to look at this next week when we get into chapter 9. Uh, we'll look at it again in chapter 12. And it's, we're going to talk about it before today's over, I promise. But he's a mediator. Back in the book of Job. Book of Job. You ever want to feel better about your life? Go read the book of Job. Right? And I'm, not, I'm not trying to dismiss anything you're going through. But Job had a very long series of very bad days. And in Job 9, 32 and 33, he says this. Speaking of God, he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may, his, may lay his hands on us both. Right? Job wanted to go to God. He wanted to know what was going on. He wanted to find out why he was dealing with all of this stuff. All of his, his, his comforters, they were really his accusers, were saying, you must be a sinner. You must be doing things wrong. God would never do this to a good person or a quote-unquote righteous man. Right? Even though we know from earlier in the book of Job that that was Job's testimony. He was a pretty good guy. He was doing things the way he was supposed to. And Job goes, I don't know why this is going on. I don't know what's happening. I wish I did. I wish I could talk to God. I wish I could ask these questions, but I can't. Why? There is no mediator between us. Right? I, I can't go to him. And as far as Job knew, he hadn't come down. And then we get to 1 Timothy 2.5. Under the new covenant, there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We don't have that problem. We want to go to him? We can. Anytime, anywhere, no matter what. That's awesome. Why? We can't go on our own. Ain't one of us can approach the throne of God and go, yeah, you know what, Lord, I'm a pretty good guy and I got something to talk to you about. <laughs> I would say I dare you to do that, but it's not going to work out well. Trust me. What we can do is come boldly through Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And you know, I'm okay with that. I will gladly approach the Father through Jesus Christ. But there is no other way. And this, of course, is based on, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which we're going to talk about more in a minute. 
and it's based on better promises. Now, this is something we have hit over and over and over again throughout the book of Hebrews. We hit it a lot uh, in the two weeks we spent in Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. Why are they better promises? Because in the Old Covenant, under the Old Testament law, the promises were based on human faithfulness. It was based on the faithfulness of the high priest. And we see, as we get up into the book of 1 Samuel, that the priesthood became corrupted. It was based on the faithfulness of human beings to keep the commandments. And as we see throughout the history of the world, we as human beings have a really hard time keeping God's commandments, especially on our own. Now, we as followers of Christ are given the gift of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, and he empowers us to keep God's commands. But we can't do it on our own. And even with the empowering of the Holy Spirit, we still fail. It was based on human faithfulness. And what happens when we base anything on human faithfulness? Well, it ain't going to go well. It ain't going to go well. However, the new promises, the promises that are given to us in Christ Jesus, even the promises of the Old Testament that were then applied by Jesus fulfilling the law on our behalf, are now based on God's faithfulness and not our own. That's why they are better promises, because God cannot be unfaithful. He just can't. He's perfect. And that's fantastic. Verse 7. See, we made it through six verses. Not too bad. Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, notice them, not it, speaking of the covenant, but them, those who were trying to keep it, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. Again, right? It's not that the law was wrong. It's that they were unfaithful to keep it. They could not continue in it. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. So the first covenant, now we went over the covenants a while back. Uh, it was a few weeks ago, so if you, if you weren't here, we can talk about that later. But the covenant that he's referring to here specifically is what we would talk about as either the Mosaic or the Levitical covenant. Some people separate the Mosaic and Levitical covenant, saying that the Mosaic covenant was Moses delivering them from Egypt, while the Levitical covenant was the Old Testament law. Um, some people put them together because Moses is the one who received the law from God on Mount Sinai and delivered it to the people. I don't really care. <laughs> if you want it to be the Mosaic, if you want it to be the Levitical, you want to put them together or separate them, that's not what's important. 
What's important is we know what they're talking about, what the book of Hebrews, what Paul is telling us here, that we understand what that means. So when he says the first covenant, he's speaking of the law, the law of sacrifices, the law that involved the tabernacle, the Levitical priesthood, and all of that. It had fault. Now, what was the fault? We talked about this last week. We talked about it today. The weakness was not that it wasn't correct or right. It was that it relied on the faithfulness and strength of human beings to uphold it. That was the problem. They couldn't do it. We shouldn't give them a hard time. We couldn't do it either. So even though the law itself was perfect, human beings could not keep it perfectly, meaning it would fail. Now, last week, and I've already mentioned it once today, last week I told you to read the book of Galatians. I am not going to ask you to put your hands up and tell me who did it, and I'm not going to put my hand up either because I didn't do it either. But the book of Galatians reminds us that this was always God's intent. He knew people could not keep the law, but he gave it anyway. Why? Because when we realize that we can't keep the law, that we can't live a perfect life, that we can't do enough good to earn our way to heaven, when we figure that out, which is what the law teaches us, then the law says, yeah, but there's someone who did it for you. And you can be saved if you go talk to him. So the whole purpose of the law was always first to lead us into a knowledge of our sin, then to lead us into a knowledge of our inability to save ourselves, which means ultimately to lead us it was our schoolmaster, or our tutor, according to the book of Galatians, to lead us to the only one who could deliver us from our sin, and that's Jesus Christ. Now, most of the rest of verses 7 through 13 are a quote from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. It starts in verse 8 with, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. So all of that is a quote from Jeremiah chapter 31. And I love this because you have to keep in mind, like I can, if I need to tell you a scripture, I either have it written in my notes or I can hold up my Bible. Right? Scrolls back then, especially a scroll like the book of Jeremiah that had 50 chapters in it, they would be huge. The scroll of the book of Isaiah, which we know has, give or take, we call it 66 chapters, but the scroll of the book of Isaiah was hundreds of feet long. So when it was rolled up, it's not something you throw in your backpack and go, you know, yeah, I'm off to synagogue, I'm going to take my Bible with me. If you had the entirety of the Old Testament written out on scrolls, it would take up rooms. Not rooms, rooms. So the fact that he just quotes it. A, either means he had the whole book of Jeremiah, or at least large portions of it, memorized. And B, it shows the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Because I'll tell you what, 99% of the time, I can't remember Bible verses unless God reminds me. Roy, Roy likes to say, man, you, you know everything. No, I don't. It's, I know very little. But by God's grace, the Holy Spirit reminds me of a lot. Which is exactly what Jesus said he would do. So let's break this down a little bit. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. He predicted that he would create a new covenant 
that he would establish with his people. And remember what Jesus said, and we see it in other places throughout the New Testament, that it was to the Jew first and then the Greek. The gospel was always meant to go to the Jewish people first. What did they do with it? Most of them rejected it. So then the gospel went to the Gentiles. And it's not that Jewish people can't get saved. They can still get saved to this day, just like anybody else, by coming to know Christ as Savior. But back then, Jesus came to the nation and said, Here, I'm your Messiah. I'm here to save you. And they said, No. Kind of hard to fathom. Now, this covenant will not be according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. The new covenant would be different than the former. And we've talked about that, right? Not established based on human effort, but on the promises and faithfulness of God. Now, the problem, because they did not continue in my covenant, this is why the new covenant was necessary, and I disregarded them, said the Lord. So a new and different covenant was required because the people failed in the first one, breaking their relationship with God through their sin and disobedience. Now, we still do that, too. Or we can, but because of Jesus Christ, because we have a mediator, we can come to him. So it goes on. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. And we get this description. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. Which means this is a personal and internal covenant established on God's word. I like that. And he says, I'm going to put it right there. It's going to be right there for them. Jesus talked about this in John chapter 14 and 16. How the Holy Spirit would come to us. He would remind us of everything Jesus said. He would teach us all things. Jesus looked at them and said, you know, there's things you need to know that you can't handle yet. When the Holy Spirit comes, he'll teach you. And that's what we have today. We have the privilege of the word of God in front of us. And then the privilege of the Holy Spirit inside of us to help make the word of God in front of us make sense. It's beautiful. He said, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is what he has always wanted. From as far back as Adam and Eve in the garden, he has always wanted a personal relationship with each of us. And we're told in the book of Isaiah, I think it's somewhere in around 45, that it's our sins that have separated us from God. So what did God do? He bridged that gap. Yes, your sins separate you and me, so I'm going to take care of your sins so we can have that relationship. He goes on, none of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. The new, this new covenant then, of course, stretches into the kingdom age, either or both, the millennial reign and then all throughout eternity, because there will come a time when knowledge of God will be universal. Now, I would make the argument that knowledge of God is universal now. Just some people choose or try. I don't think... That's the right word. They try to ignore it. But the most diehard atheists, let me, how many of you have ever argued uh, with somebody about the existence of unicorns? Right? You ever gotten into a fight with somebody and said, no, you're a fool. There's no such thing as hobbits. I've never met anybody who actually believes in hobbits. I've come close. But I don't really actually believe in hobbits. You, you guys know how much I love. Right? He ever argued with somebody over the existence of the tooth fairy? 
And we like to tell our kids about the Jews. <laughs> Thanks, Pat. <laughs> Pat was like, yeah, sure. Uh, right, but you don't, why? Why wouldn't we do that? Why don't you have stickers on the back of your car that say, you know, down with the tooth fairy, we hate the tooth fairy. Why aren't there rallies and conventions where, where people spend millions of dollars and, and dedicate large chunks of their time to arguing against the existence of the tooth fairy? Because they know the tooth fairy doesn't exist. Sorry, kids. I kind of wish the tooth fairy would exist. I've lost a few teeth. As you get older, right, inflation. When I was a kid, I got a quarter. I get like 50 bucks a piece now. But there's no such thing. So nobody argues about it. Why do atheists argue against the existence of God so much? If you don't believe he exists, why are you arguing about it? That doesn't make any sense. You don't argue against something that trying to convince other people that it doesn't exist. If you know it doesn't exist, it wouldn't bother you. If somebody told me, oh, unicorns are real, good for you. Right? I mean, you can, you can make the argument for a Dewey rhinoceros. Kind of a fat unicorn, but, you know, general idea. Magical, you know, unicorns with wings. That probably not. But why do atheists argue so vehemently against the existence of God? Because somewhere inside they know he exists. And somewhere inside they know he, they will be judged one day, and they don't want to deal with that. They want to live however they want. They want to pretend there's no consequences for sin. They want to pretend there's no God. They want to pretend there's no morality. That's what they want. So they try to argue against it. But you wouldn't argue against it unless somewhere inside you knew it was true. There will be a universal knowledge of God. And finally, he says, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. The new covenant is based on God's grace towards his people in which their and our sin can be forgiven. Because even in the old covenant, and I, I want to be careful because we're going to get a little too far ahead of ourselves. But the Old Covenant, all the sacrifices would, could do was to temporarily cover sin. Temporarily. Recently, um, we cleaned the carpets in the church. And if you paid attention, you walked around and you looked at the floor, we had some stains. One or two of them were my fault. Because I tend to walk around the church even during the week with a cup of coffee. And more than once, that cup of coffee has been introduced to the carpet. Now, here's the thing, right? I'll go get paper towels. I'll soak it with water. We have like some carpet spray and, and the janitor's pot. I'll spray it and I'll scrub it. How good am I going to, am I really, it's not going to come out, is it? I'm going to make it a little better, right? Move, you adjust, you ever come in and you know all the chairs are adjusted? That's because somebody spilled coffee. We're trying to make it, well, we don't want that to be too obvious, but just, there. There's no stain. What are you talking about? But all we're doing is a temporary cover. That's what the Old Testament sacrifices were. Jesus is the carpet cleaner that we brought in when we cleaned the carpets. What does the carpet cleaner do? It actually sucks the stain out of the carpet. And when you're done, stain is gone. 
And that's what the blood of Jesus Christ does. That's the difference. Like I said, I won't spend too much time on that because we're going to talk about that in chapters 9. Or, or in chapters, there's only one chapter in Hebrews. But this new covenant, because of it, he has made the first obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. So if you recall a couple of weeks ago, we did that quick review of the covenants, the Adamic, Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic uh, covenant, leading all the way up to the new covenant. And each time a new covenant was put in place, it superseded the previous covenant. So you had the Adamic covenant. When the Noahic covenant came into place, the Adamic, the Adamic, the Adamic, that was close. The, old, the Adamic covenant was replaced by the going to be in my mind all day now. You guys know me too well. It was replaced by the Noahic covenant. Then the Noahic covenant was in place until the Abrahamic covenant. Then the Abrahamic covenant was in place until the Mosaic covenant or the Levitical covenant. That stayed in place until the new covenant. There is nothing that will replace the new covenant because the new covenant is established in Jesus' blood. It replaces or more specifically, according to Jesus' own words, fulfills the previous covenants so it's no longer needed. And so I am personally and still amazed by those who want to try and seek to maintain the old covenants. I've met people like that. Oh, you got to keep the law if you want to be saved. Everything in the New Testament tells us that's wrong. Everything. If anybody says, oh, no, you've got you to keep the law if you want to be saved. No, you don't. That person... Is, is listening to lies, I'm sorry. Or they're propagating lies, depending on their position. Because it's not what the Bible teaches us. It can't be done, and it's unnecessary because of the new covenant we've been given in Jesus Christ. So we're going to turn to that for just a few minutes. I promise we won't take too long. Uh, but I have a number three, the new covenant in Jesus Christ. So we're going to take a few moments to look at the new covenant of grace established in Jesus Christ. This is the covenant that's based on better promises and is wholly focused on the better mediator. So we begin with where was the new covenant established? I mean, it was promised throughout the Old Testament in more than one place, but that's number two on my list. It was established by Jesus Christ at the Last Supper. In Luke 22, verses 19 and 20, Jesus said, well, the book of Luke says, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. Then Jesus said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So the new covenant is established by Jesus Christ. We celebrate it every time we celebrate communion as a church, which we will do next Sunday. But it's the new covenant in his blood. Why? Because his blood was the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice that established the new covenant of grace for us to be saved. Prophesied in the Old Testament. We already looked at that passage from Jeremiah. But there are others that speak of this new relationship by grace. One of my favorites is in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. This describes salvation the way we know it based upon the new covenant of grace. Listen to these words. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you 
and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. So there, how do we keep, what is this new covenant? It's God cleansing us from our sin. It's God transforming our hearts. It's God, I had to move my water bottle so I could do number three. It's God who gives us his spirit, and it's by the power of his spirit that now we live the life that he wants us to live. That's the new covenant right there in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36. There's other places. We can go all the way back. One of my favorites, there's two hints. Well, actually, there's a dozen hints, but there's two that I'm going to talk about all the way back in the book of Genesis. That the seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent. Right? Women don't have seed. Not to be gross, women have eggs. It's the guys who have the seed. So all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, the immaculate conception and virgin birth of our Savior is hinted at. Hinted at. Remember when Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac and they're headed up to the mountain. The same mountain Jesus was crucified on, by the way. Mount Moriah is where Calvary is located, or Golgotha. Even though Jerusalem didn't exist yet, but it's the same mountain, which is interesting enough. On their way up to the mountain, Isaac looks at his dad and says, uh, Dad, you got, you got wood? You got rope? Right? You, know, you got the knife? We got the fire? Right? They would have had a torch lit. Where's the sacrifice? And most of our Bibles say something to the effect that God will provide for himself the sacrifice. Which is nice, but that's not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says God will provide himself the sacrifice. Once again, right, it's not overt, but once again a prediction that God would be the one who sacrificed himself, which is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus, being God, sacrificed himself. So, throughout the Old Testament, if you look for it, you ask the Holy Spirit to show you places throughout the Old Testament where this new covenant is predicted and spoken of, oh, the Old Testament comes alive because you start to see things you had no idea were there. Of course, the new covenant is based on God's promises, and God's work, not our own. So what's the promise of the new covenant? That Jesus Christ, the only son of God, was born sinless, lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death, rose triumphantly from the grave, and ascended to the right hand of God. And the promise is that whoever believes in him will be forgiven and saved. And this is all the work of his grace in our lives by the Holy Spirit. And there are so many scriptures that speak of this. John chapter 3, Romans 4, 5, and 6, and Romans 10, 2 Corinthians 11, Ephesians chapter 2, Galatians 3 and 4, and a host of others. So, so many. Many of them we've been looking at in Hebrews, like back in chapter 4. But all of this is of God. It's all of his grace. It's all by faith, not of works, so that we can't boast. And it's all predicated upon God's strength 
and upon God's faithfulness, not our own. I don't know about you, but that's good news. That's good news, because I know I'm weak. I know I'll fail. I know as, even as hard as I try to be faithful, there's times where I will stumble. Or I'll make, I'll, yeah, I promise I'll do that. And then I have to forget. So I'm so grateful that it's based on him, not me. Before, it will continue forever. I love this. The old covenant law was always meant to be temporary. Jesus fulfilled it in his ministry and then applies his fulfillment of it to us. Uh, 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 in his death and resurrection. Consider Psalm 103, verses 8 through 18. I know it's a lot, but I went to Psalm 103. I'm like, oh yeah, verse 8. Ooh, verse 9. Ooh, verse 10. Oh, the heck with it. I just copied and pasted it all into my notes because it's that good. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. I love passages like this in the Old Testament. Oh, the Old Testament. God is a God of wrath, and the New Testament is a God of love. They're two different gods. Oh, really? Only one God. There is just as much love, grace, and mercy in the Old Testament as there is in the New. And if you don't think there's any wrath in the New Testament, you've never read it. Jesus talks about it. The epistles talk about it. The book of Revelation lays it out for us. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Think about that truth. A lot of people, we love to say, oh Lord, bring justice on other people. I have never, nor will I ever pray that God bring justice on me. I know what I deserve. So I've even kind of gotten out of the habit of praying that God bring justice on other people. Because, well, I don't want justice. I want mercy. I want grace. So I should want that for other people as well. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it and is gone, and its place is remembered no more. But listen, the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant and those who remember his commandments and do them. Then we go back to Ezekiel. Well, the only way we can keep his commandments is because he's put his spirit in us. Oh, it's so good. There's, of course, a lot of other passages. We talked about the unchanging nature of God in Hebrews chapter 6. We will again when we get to Hebrews 13. There's Romans 8. One of the reasons we, we did that new song this morning, if God is for us, who can be against us? And we're promised that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. So we can have confidence in him. We can have confidence in what he has done. We can know that what he has done is sufficient 
to save us, and we can rest in his all-sufficient grace as a result. There's a reason the gospel is such good news. Let's close. D.L. Moody said that there is a scarlet thread running throughout the Bible. The whole book points to Christ. And it's very, very true. I believe this is something we clearly see in the book of Hebrews that we will continue to see in the weeks ahead. All of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant law, was meant to point us to Jesus Christ, who has a better ministry, a new and better covenant in his blood that's been established on better promises of God's faithfulness. This is our hope, the hope that God has given us in his Son as the mediator between us and himself, that by his grace he offers us forgiveness and the removal of our sins, he offers to take our hardened hearts and to replace them with his righteousness and a soft heart that he can mold into the image of his son. Thanks be to God for his indescribable grace. So I always ask a few questions just because I think it's fun. Actually, because I really want you to take something home with you. First and foremost, I've already asked this a couple times today, and I don't care. I'm going to ask again. Have you come to God through Jesus Christ to be forgiven and made new by his love and his power and his grace? I'm going to tell you this right now. There are too many people in our world, too many people who are sitting in churches right now, maybe here, maybe somewhere else, I don't know, who think they're saved. I go to church. I must be going to heaven. Going to church means you're a Christian about as much as sleeping in the garage means you're a car. One of my favorites, I had, uh, you know, I talk about this quite regularly, I have breakfast with several other pastors every week, and this past week we had a, a friend of one of the other pastors from Texas up here, so he had breakfast with us, and we were having this discussion, and he said evangelism in Texas is hard. He goes, I have literally talked to people and said, well, do you know Jesus Christ? Well, I'm a Texan. Of course I'm a Christian. God bless Texas, <laughs> right? But be, does being born in Texas mean you're going to heaven? No, it does not. How many people in America will say, well, yeah, I, I believe in God. I'm an American, aren't I? That doesn't mean anything. There are people who are going to listen to this sermon. Well, I'm listening to this sermon. Obviously, I'm a Christian. I heard a lot of sermons before I got saved. Most of them were really bad, which is why I probably didn't get saved. But... Still, I always tell this story. My, my wife, her parents went to this church. God bless J.R. Ball. He, he's passed on now. He's in glory. He has to answer for that one sermon, though. And she already knows what I'm going to talk about. His sermon was not a sermon about Jesus Christ. It was about the Boy Scouts. Dead serious. Because his whole sermon was about how he kept twine or, or uh, uh, bailing wire in the car, and he used it to fix his, his uh, carburetor. And it's important to be prepared. Now, at the time, I was like, this is stupid. Because I was a 17-year-old kid who had nothing to do with the Lord. Thirty-some years later, as a pastor, I think back on that sermon and go, wow, that sermon was stupid. <laughs> Hasn't gotten better with time. Because he never talked about Jesus. I don't even think he opened the Bible. Anyway, 
lot of people who think they're okay. If there's any doubt in your mind whatsoever, ever, whether you're online or you're listening or you hear this later, get in touch with us. Let us help you learn. From this passage, there are four better promises that we can hold on to as followers of Christ. That's what I'm going to leave you with. First, the promise of endless grace based on his faithfulness and not ours from Psalm 103. Because so often we as followers of Christ even will think, oh, I've gone too far. I've done too much. I can't be forgiven. Horse pucky. It's based on his endless grace. We can be forgiven when we return to him in repentance and ask. The promise of internal change. This is a work of God's Holy Spirit. It's the fruit of repentance and the evidence of our salvation as Christ's life is formed in us. You can check out 2 Peter 1, 1 through 4. Anybody here wondering, how do you know, how do I know if I'm a Christian? How do I know that I've received Christ? Are you different? It's a great question to ask. Hard one to think about sometimes. But are you different? Is the Holy Spirit working in you? Are you different today than you were a week ago, a month ago, a decade ago? Good question. We're given the promise of forgiveness. God will forgive us when we confess and turn from our sins to Jesus Christ. And then he calls us to offer that same forgiveness to others. Now, we do not presume upon the grace of God. Romans 6 warns us against that. Well, I can sin all I want. God will forgive me. Oh, that's a bad idea. It's a really bad idea. Or I can live however I want and I'll repent right on my deathbed. You think God is that stupid? That he doesn't know what you're up to? I've heard people say stuff like, oh yeah, I'm going to repent right on my deathbed. What happens if you get hit by a truck? How much time are you going to have to get right with God? Lord, I'm sorry. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. Get right now. And then, of course, for those of us who know Jesus Christ, we have the promise of eternal blessing. All that is ours in Christ. And no matter how bad today may be, it pales in comparison to what's coming. It's the promise we're given in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. I like that promise. Actually, I actually have that promise hanging up in my office. Because, you know, sometimes we have bad days. I don't know about you. I do. Sometimes I need to remember that there's so much better coming. And that's all given to us as a gift in Jesus Christ. It's a gift we can't take for granted. It's a gift that we can't assume or presume upon. Just don't do it. Know Jesus, walk in his ways, be filled with his spirit, so there's no doubt. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for your incredible grace for each of us. We thank you for the incredible promises of the new covenant that are ours in Christ. And I pray for anybody here, anybody who's listening online, anybody who may hear this recording later, if there's anybody listening who doesn't know you or they're not sure, God, today is the day. Let that person hear your voice. Let that person hear your Holy Spirit calling to them, drawing them to yourself, and let them respond. Lord, we thank you for your Son, and we thank you for your word. 
We pray that you would be glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.